Welcome to the fifth episode of the Mindful Truth Podcast. I am joined by Dr. Josh Shapiro, a professor at Fordham University. He is the co-author of A Gathering of Brilliant Moons, Practical Advice from the Ecumenical Masters of Tibet, which is what I'll be discussing with him today. It's great to see you. This is a conglomeration of teachings from 19th century Buddhist thinkers, which you've translated. Uh, why do you feel these voices are worth listening to? Great. Well, thanks, Ben, for inviting me on for this discussion. It should be nice to talk about this material. Um, so it's actually a collection that I co-edited with um, a, a colleague of mine who's at the University of Colorado, and we gathered together a bunch of friends and colleagues, some of whom are professional translators who are kind of, uh, in a simpler way, professional Buddhists, meaning that they both have their own Buddhist practice, meditation practice and otherwise, but also their teachers, or committed in some way to a life of Buddhist teaching, in particular to spreading certain special um, texts, advice, writings, and the like, specifically from the Tibetan world. So some of the people who are collected in this volume are the work of some of the people who appear in this volume. The translators are kind of professionals in that realm. And then others in this um, book, the actual translators, others of the translators are academics, professional, essentially teachers, researchers, and the like. Some of them also have personal Buddhist practice, but they participate in teaching in a very different way by publishing and uh, operating in the universities. So it's kind of a wide group of people who put the project together, myself and my colleague um, Holly Gailey, who kind of put the project together over the course of some years, and we held a conference and then eventually did the book. But I think what's probably much more interesting, and what I, you're clearly asking about, Ben, is the content of the book, um, the folks who were translating. And those people are very, very famous, but also an eclectic group of Tibetan Buddhists. With one exception, one of the great teachers who appears in this book is actually part of what's called the Bun tradition, which is a slightly different religion in Tibet, but quite related to Buddhism. So to get to your question, right, why would anyone be interested in this material? I think there are a couple ways to answer it. The first and probably the simplest thing to say is that there are some very gifted authors. So both in terms of the reputation that teachers had in the 1800s, primarily in Tibet, but also to together uh, onwards to this day in the 20th and 21st centuries, both um, Tibetans, people who are culturally Tibetan and Buddhists, and also people in the United States and Canada and elsewhere in the world who've come to practice Tibetan forms of Buddhism, continually take inspiration from some of these teachers, some of whom are very famous. So someone named Jamgun Kultur Rinpoche, someone named Patro Rinpoche, and others who appear in this book. So they're really quite famous teachers. But why in particular this book, and not just reading something else by those figures? Well, this book collects together what we call Sheldam, which is a broad category, probably not of interest to your listeners, as a genre. But the idea of Sheldam is to transmit pith instructions, um, intimate instructions, personal instructions from a teacher to a student. Now, one might think that personal instructions from a teacher to the student would always be kind of colloquial, kind of uh, religious pep talks. <laughs> but in fact, what we find in this collection is that a lot of these intimate instructions, some of which for your, leader, for your listeners might be interesting, some of these instructions are explicitly about meditation. 
A lot of them just have to do with how to properly conduct your life. Some have to do with what you eat, vegetarianism. Some have to do with what happens when you're sick. So they're quite practical. You would think, again, that these would be something like either pedantic instructions, you should do this, you should not do that, or you might think they'd be just totally colloquial. But um, to the contrary, when you actually look at the book and some of the things that we've translated, a lot of these authors had were very gifted literary figures. They had a poetic way of transmitting really profound ideas in simple language. It's like a way of offering the teaching instead of forcing it down someone's throat. I think that's absolutely right. And so there's a lot to be said in Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism, which are n fancy names for forms of Buddhism you find in Tibet. There are a lot of, there's a lot of talk about the way in which teachers are skillful in transmitting ideas or practices, meaning teachings about suffering, for example, or teachings about what you do about suffering, meditation and the like. There's a lot of talk about how to transmit those ideas and practices to people based on their own specific needs. So the kind of the idea of Zheldam, the idea of these intimate teachings, is to give people what they need specifically. So there's no way to know if you're shopping for this book online what you need. But one of the fun things about this book of Gathering of, uh, uh, gathering of Brilliant Moons is that you have a collection of a variety of approaches, some of which are funny, there are some stories, there are a lot of poems, uh, and there's a lot of direct intimate instruction on how one carries out meditation. And it's all gathered together. So I think one of the fun things about the book is its eclecticism. There's just a lot of going on. And yet each example, I would hope you'd find, but certainly each example is rich with kind of literary quality. We're not, the translations here aren't of like secondary works. They're really beautiful kind of what we sometimes call gems of teachings from very famous beloved teachers. So um, hopefully people who would take a look at the book would find something that would be, that they would be able to personally connect with. And there seems to be uh, a respect uh, among the different teachers. They um, subscribe to the Rime philosophy of non-sectarianism. Uh, can you explain what that is? Sure. So in a way, it's kind of a complicated topic. And one of the jobs in the introduction of the book, but also in the very short essays that our translators compose before their translations, one of the goals of this book is to think about what this idea of ecumen ecumenism or non-sectarianism could mean. And actually, the teachers are quite creative about what it means. So in the simplest of terms, ecumenism means a certain open-mindedness to different ways of doing things while still being committed to your own particular lineage. And by lineage, I just mean the instructions you get from a teacher, which is to say if you have a teacher and they tell you to do X, Y, and Z, it doesn't make much sense as an individual to say, okay, first I'll do X, then I'll do Z, then I'm going to introduce Q or L or M because I'd like to, or because I heard a recommendation from a friend, or because I saw a YouTube video. Right? The idea, and it's quite important in the Tibetan tradition, is that you're committed to your teacher, or your teachers in the plural, and you take very seriously the instructions they gave you. Isn't that a bit restricting, though? What if uh, something else speaks to you? That's great. So one of the questions is, how do you know that you can mix things together properly? So the kind of the the attitude, let's say, that you find in this book by some of the authors is to say it's important to both respect your lineage and understand how it works, and yet be open-minded to other lineages. Because the problem of being too rigid, as you're suggesting, often leads into a certain judgmentalness. And an interesting kind of overlap in the idea here of Rime or non-sectarianism is between this attitude of being committed to your lineage and yet open-minded to others, on the one hand, 
And then secondarily, the importance of being open-minded as an actual facet of meditation. So one of them has to do with open-mindedness towards meditation instructions, and the other has to do with just the general value as a human being of non-judgmental open-mindedness, which is something that may sound simple, but is remarkably difficult because as human beings, we instinctively at every moment we judge. Make judgments. Sometimes yes. they're ethical judgments. Sometimes they're perceptual judgments. This is what this is. I'm sure of it. This is what that is. I'm sure of it. We make value judgments. This is what this is, and I want it. This is what this is, and I don't want it. And this gets leads us to all sorts of trouble. So kind of to wrap a quick bow on it, this idea of ecumenism means, or non-sectarianism means a lot of things. One of them has to do with how you choose to both practice and respect other religious traditions. It also has very much to do with how you train your mind. And so what's interesting in these essays, but also in the translations that we provide in the book, is you find both attitudes uh, articulated in very creative ways by these Tibetan authors. You've gone into uh, judging external, um, judging philosophies. Um, do these teachers, and uh, consequently their students, how do they judge um, their internal uh, dialogue, uh, what's going on in their mind? Do they judge it, or do they let it um, uh, just come and go? It's a, a great question, and it's a question as a kind of a scholar of Buddhism and someone who's familiar with this material, I'm happy to talk about it a bit. But to say like this, you're, the question you're asking gets to one of the real core issues in meditation instruction, which is to say it's very tricky. It takes a real talented teacher, a gifted teacher who's had certain both meditation experiences, but also practiced guiding others. It takes a real master. This is the claim you find. It takes a master to guide someone, a student, through the very questions you're asking. Why? Because if I say to you, Ben, stop judging things, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to start judging yourself. Yes. For judging things. Right. And that's, yeah, that's a judgment. So <laughs> um, one way of talking about this, right, to introduce some fancy vocabulary, we might as well, we're having the conversation, is that there's one sp special tradition in Tibet that's respected by many of the authors in the book called Dzogchen, which literally means something like the great perfection or the great completion. Great perfection is usually how it's translated. And the great perfection is a system of meditation, it's a collection of texts, it's a long lineage, but most simply, Dzogchen is an attitude, a pure attitude of open-mindedness, free from judgment. And it's kind of an aspect of all human experience, the argument would go, that in a way underlies all of our sensory experience, our emotional experience, our cognitive experience, is this perfect, open-minded state. Now, again, people will talk about that in various ways. And I'm certainly not a Tibetan master, so it may not be helpful the way I describe it. But there's this interest in something like Dzogchen, which is a pure, in a way, non-biased, non-judgmental way of being in the world. And one of the questions you have in the Tibetan tradition is how do students build up to something that's already there? Hmm. Because on the one hand, you want to say, Dzogchen itself is not a teaching. It's the state of being. Open-mindedness beyond judgment that's available to all beings at all times. On the one hand, on the other hand, you can't just 
snap your fingers, and open yourself to that experience because of our history, our habituated judgments. Even the expectation that something's going to happen that will be transformative, that allows me to open up to this experience of non-judgment, that very expectation can prevent the experience. So it gets very tricky. And what you find here in the book, if you start digging, are interesting methods and strategies for simultaneously describing a hierarchy or a set of stages where you achieve this highest stage of Dzogchen, this highest stage of openness. Is that attainable? While simultaneously recognizing that there are no stages. And this quote-unquote highest stage isn't actually higher than anything else. It's always present. Because if the idea is that there's a high stage you're achieving, then you generate desire and craving and judgments that that stage is better than all the other stages. And then it's no different than anything else that you're attached to. So there's a game, in a way, of describing non-sectarianism, non-bias, and in this, from this perspective, non-judgment, of something that you nonetheless value above other things. In a way, it's a bit of a paradox. So this isn't an abstract paradox for the teachers in this book. This is a practical challenge of how to get through to their students over time to demand a certain amount of rigor and discipline to change the way their minds work so that they more frequently, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, so that they more frequently are capable of opening their minds to this state of non-judgment without just creating new judgments, but simultaneously without saying like, oh, it's no problem. A second grader can do it, right? A five-year-old can do it. You can do it, which in a way is true. All human beings are capable of a certain kind of non-judgmental engagement. If it's already in there, then... Uh, it should be attainable, but... It, it is. Well, it's not even attainable because it's not something you need to get. It's something that's available. But we don't really have access to unless we try to get it. But at every moment, one of the ways they speak about in Dzogchen is that at every moment we forget. And what happens if you do forget? I'm sure um, teachers and students falter at points. Yeah, suffering happens. I mean, this is no great tragedy. Suffering, confusion, mistakes, pride, jealousy some cases, anger or passionate desire. I mean, these are the outcomes of making judgments, false judgments. That happens every day, all the time, at every moment. This is the human experience. And then actually, and from Buddhist ph- perspective of a lot of Buddhist philosophy, it's not just human experience. It's experience of animals and then all sorts of other beings we may or may not believe in. Gods have this problem. So, Did, uh, um, yeah, so in a way, it's quite normal. For teachers and students as well. Just because one's Buddhist or grew up in the Tibetan culture doesn't mean you're free from this problem. It's a human problem. But it's a serious challenge, I'd say, for the teachers to find ways in a way to allow their students to open up to this experience. In this case, we're calling it Dzogchen experience. Through proper, rigorous practice without generating more desire and craving and pride. In a way, one of the problems is that one becomes very prideful of one's own tradition. This isn't just about Tibetan Buddhism, of which there are many kind of subsects. You would say, well, I am prideful because I think we have the best teachings amongst all the Tibetan Buddhists. 
Or you might say, I'm prideful because I have the best religion amongst all the different religions. Or I am prideful because my ethical philosophy that I learned at, uh, that I learned when I was Fordham, at Fordham University is the best one. Or I'm prideful because the ethics that I attach to social policy is manifested in this political party and it's better than others. We do this constantly all the time. And in meditation communities, it's the same thing in the United States. It's just natural. I like to practice meditation in this community. I like to practice meditation in that community. And that community is full of it. This is where the real teachings are. Those people are superficial. This is authentic. As human beings, we do this all the time. And in a way, you could say that some of these authors are reacting to that problem. But it doesn't mean anything goes. They still want to have standards. The answer can't be from the perspective of these teachers that everyone is on their own path. Everyone has their own individual is empowered individually to make their own choices to that's come a, up with their own path. That's actually a very Western idea. Um, there's a whole concept of spiritual but not religious, and that um, I can sort of do my own thing and incorporate meditation to my life. Um, sort of extracting it from the uh, the culture to have uh, some sort of benefit, whether it be better sleep or um, uh, higher IQ. And um, is that uh, the wrong path? Well, I can't make a judgment, Ben. And I think that this well, idea of yeah. spiritual consumerism in a way, that we each are empowered to shop for our own set of practices, I would not want to say that that's an entirely a negative thing. I mean, people find, based on their own needs, teachings and solu solutions is not the right word, but teachings and practices and habits and communities that help them. But and that's in never, contradiction with Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah, so I would never want to say this is an entirely a bad thing. I mean, everything, you know, there's a lot of cause and effect relationships. There's good outcomes and bad outcomes. But I would, one thing I would say strongly is, despite the fact that we call these folks non-sectarian, ecumenical, open-minded figures. I'm very confident in saying that the people that we've gathered together in this book of famous Tibetan teachers would not be happy with the freedom that comes from marketplace spirituality in the United States. It just doesn't reflect what their values are. Their values are a rigorous commitment to a particular lineage, taking seriously your teacher and your teacher's instructions, being devoted to those instructions and the people carrying out those instructions. And so the idea that you know best what your own needs are, that idea just doesn't make any sense in this social Buddhist context. You don't know what you need best. It's the contrary. So, which is why one needs to give oneself over to a tradition and its values and its instructions, even if you want to be open-minded about others. So yeah, so this, what I'll say again, is that I'm not sure personally as a human being, as Josh Shapiro, I would not p feel comfortable on this podcast preaching about the, the, va the value or the degeneracy of contemporary spiritual marketplace consumption where you pick and choose. I think there are good things about it and bad things about it. But the folks in this book, I think I'm pretty confident saying they would not be thrilled. They would not be thrilled. Um, but... Isn't that uh, a judgment in itself uh, to judge uh, marketplace spirituality? Well, absolutely. And one of the things you find in the book, especially in the ethical instructions, is that human beings have to make judgments. There's judgments about positive activities, generous activities that, are, that come out of kind of uh, generosity, patience, 
care, compassion, positive acts, and acts that are motivated by anger, jealousy, pride, passionate desire to get something for yourself, desire for fame, for social political stature. These different ways of being, these different actions, what we would just call ethics, I mean, straight up ethics, you find that in this book, are demand judgment, good from bad, kind of positive actions from negative actions, actions that are going to lead to what's called karma, negative karma, but bad outcomes, and actions that are going to lead to positive outcomes. Without that kind of differentiation, you can't get anywhere in the path to liberation. You can't get anywhere in these Tibet Buddhist paths. They'll say that explicitly. And yet, simultaneously, there are levels of the path, especially if you have like your ethical house in order, if you start behaving like a good human being and you develop good ethical habits, when you start overcoming this instinctive judgment. So it's both. This is one of the reasons that, that why their form of non-sectarianism is complicated. It's subtle. It's nuanced. Open-mindedness does not mean being simplistic, does not mean withholding judgment in every moment. It's a limited open-mindedness? Well, they would say it's the opposite. It's expanded open-mindedness. They would say it's wisdom. Even though at some points you might not be as open-minded. It's a balancing act, really. I don't know if they'd say it's a balancing act. It's an interesting metaphor, and it's an open question. Wisdom needs to be insightful. Wisdom needs to cut through the mistakes and the mistaken habits we make. And part of the wisdom emerges from meditative practice where you train in non-judgment. And part of wisdom is generated through the study of the nature of reality, how things are, and what consequences follow from what actions. These are just this is the kind of language they would use. It's hard to speak in general about all these figures. They're each individual, and they have different strategies. And the book hopefully captures some of that. But... I think that this balance, I mean, you're asking a difficult question, but I think this balance is important. The message generally in these traditions, and certainly in the Dzogchen tradition, is not that anything goes. This isn't a broadly pluralist, it's not pluralism. It's not to say everyone has their different approach, let's accept everybody, except in the extreme circumstances where people get hurt. I think for most of these teachers, that's not ambitious enough. They're trying to bring about awakening, transform the way people see the world. Isn't that a bit of arrogance, though, to say that I have uh, the way, the way to enlightenment? I think within the cultural world that these folks are operating in, there's a broad commitment to Buddha's teachings. And within that world, many of these figures are calling for an open-mindedness about different paths but it does not mean that they're open-minded about everything. Now, look, they're not operating in a multi-religious context, right? I mean, they're in, this isn't just an issue of the United States versus Asia. I mean, there are plenty of cultures historically and centers in Asia where there were many different religious traditions functioning at once and competing. But generally speaking, 19th century Tibet was not one of those places. There was a, this isn't exactly true, but there was more or less a common understanding about the truth or the let's say the effectiveness of Buddhist training. 
Everyone mm. agreed, more or less. Again, there's some exceptions, but for the most part, everyone agrees. So there was no so, internal political struggle among religions. Well, no, there was definitely political struggle, but it just wasn't multiple different religious traditions. It wasn't like you had Presbyterians here and Baptists here and Muslims here and yes, here yeah. and whoever else, right? And Jewish traditions and atheists and agnostics. It's not to say everyone agreed about things, but people disagreed within a broad framework that was dominated by Buddhism, if that makes sense. So oh, example, it's internal, you can go to a yes. Catholic church, and everyone disagrees about things. But there might be a disagreement within the framework of Catholicism. So there's a certain disagreement in religious tradition within a broad fame of Buddhism. Again, I'm simplifying a little bit, but not that much. So again, not to say everyone agrees, but they agree within that framework. So to get back to your question, I'm not sure the attitude would be uh, uh, would be one of, I forgot the word you used, but one of arrogance. It's kind of commonly accepted, and there's a deep commitment. I mean, you can't be... You can't. It's very hard to imagine human beings going through the rigorous trainings, educational trainings, philosophical training. Sometimes they learn how to debate, physical training, and meditative training to actually get somewhere in the path of liberation. If you're just haphazardly committed to it, if you're just sampling it for a couple of years and then you're going to move on to something else, human beings just don't really work that way. You're not going to get anywhere. I think that would be the attitude here. So, sure, I guess you could say that they're arrogant and closed-minded in that way. But um, I'm not sure. I don't know. It would be interesting to see what the pushback would be like. It's a little bit hard to imagine from 21st century in the United States what the context would be like in the 19th century Tibet. It's just totally different worlds. But that doesn't mean that their words aren't interesting for people in the 21st century because these people are really, really good at poetically capturing some of the experiences that happen in meditation. They're really funny and playful in their ways that they cajole human beings to act ethically or morally. So there's a lot to learn from them. These are really smart people who are gifted teachers. But that doesn't mean they're living in the same world we live in. That would be weird. They no, lived, no, yeah, yeah. Right? But was, People lived 150 years ago, in some cases almost 200 years ago, in a totally different cultural space. Was everyone so devoted in uh, Tibet? Or were there people who faltered and uh, were they shunned? Um, were they um, judged a bit by not uh, conforming to the teachings? It's a little hard to know because so much of the materials that we have, historical materials that we have, are explicitly Buddhist. And that's what's been the focus focus has been for historians and scholars is explicitly Buddhist material. So you're not going to get a lot of discussions about what some farmers thought about the Buddhist tradition. I mean, generally speaking, we can probably say that a certain commitment and deep-seated respect for Buddhism and Buddhist institutions is really at the heart of Tibetan culture, and that seems to continually have been the case. But I'm not sure we should think, therefore, that somehow Tibetans were simple-minded people and everyone was going along for the ride. I don't, I don't have contrary evidence exactly. I mean, we don't have, like, nomadic communities publishing books. Cause no right, right, books. yeah. So, like, confessional books or autobiography or, like, I don't know what it might be, like, snarky songs. We don't have that. But just being familiar with human beings, my guess is there were plenty of people that were cynical and skeptical. And there was plenty of competition and there was plenty of political intrigue. And not everyone was nice to each other. And so I'm sure that I'm in the complicated mix of Tibetan culture. There are plenty of people who thought that most of the Buddhists were full of it. I can't prove it to you. Right, right. right. And the Tibetan culture doesn't self-present itself as a group, as a community of like cynical skeptics. Generally speaking, there's a certain pride in the way that Tibetan communities, even in exile, present themselves as being quite devoted to Buddhism. They're proud of their cultural tradition. They should be. But... If you're just asking me my opinion, no, I, I'm sure people disagreed and some people thought a lot of it was nonsense. 
Hmm. Um, there was one uh, uh, piece of advice uh, in the book that I thought would really resonate with uh, people now. It's uh, a jeweled rosary of advice, and it goes into balance. And uh, especially now, I don't. I think there are a lot of people who um, take life in extremes, and you see it in wellness. They um, have an extreme wellness uh uh life after having done some extreme thing prior to it um but this talks about balancing like for example uh while upholding the public good is constructive being overly careful is unfortunate or you may uphold uh superior standards for everyone but uh excessive arrogance causes disaster for you yourself and others um is it possible to to maintain a, a balancing act, I, I could I could imagine it being very subjective. Uh, what is balance? So what what is balance for uh, Tibetan uh, practitioners of Tibetan That's Buddhism? a great question. This is a fun chapter at Jilled Rosary Advice. It's Kaishongtan Tempikyatso. It's part of what's called the Gelug tradition, which in for the majority, or at least for the last 500 years, was actually kind of a dominant political f- force in Buddhist religiosity, let's say. But um, this set of really kind of poetic lines, right? Some of it's almost like um, kind of colloquialisms, almost like folk wisdom, is really nice in addressing the question you're asking. It's part of a series of, uh, of, uh, of advice instructions called Micha, that make the distinction between Micha, which is like the Dharma or the way of acting for people, and Lacha, the way of acting for gods. And the distinction here isn't just between like deities and human beings. Michu would have to do with like everyday human interactions, which is what you're asking about. Lacha has to do with kind of more stereotypically quote unquote Buddhist interactions, things that are going to help you get to a different spiritual state. But the stuff you're asking about is in the Michu section, which means it's just the basic judgments, habits, and really judgment calls, speaking of the word judgment, that normal human beings have to make all the time. And I like that you're picking up on this idea of balance. But what I would say in thinking about Shankton uh, Tempegyatso's recommendations, which are sometimes tricky and hard to figure out if you read through this chapter a little bit, is that it's not always obvious. There isn't no. necessarily a rule that you follow. And in a way, what he's recommending is something like informed common sense. And he's not going to say that because the idea here is that, no, there is, is possible to morally instruct other human beings to both be careful, right, but not overly careful right they can't really they're not in a position to say in this situation you need to do this exactly right and in a way that is very much the problem of Mitchell. that is the problem of being a human being engaging in ethical interactions with other human beings just being a moral being means there are going to be judgment calls and so you have other kind of more formal considerations of buddhist ethics or formal considerations of how to follow instructions to become an enlightened, awakened being through meditation, instruction, and the like. What's fun about this is how real it is, even though it's from a different culture. I mean, there are moments that are really kind of rich. Yeah, I, I'm reading it. It's like uh, I can relate to this totally. Yeah, and to be honest, like, you know, excuse the expression here in your podcast, but, you know, Shankar Tempagyatso, he doesn't take any bullshit. I mean, you can say bullshit. Yeah, I mean, he's interested in real people. And so his advice is serious. He's intent on it, but he's not rigid. But in a way, it's an acknowledgement that that's real. 
it's not just in Tibetan culture you find advice like this. In a way, you might say this is universal, but it's nice, I think. It's a nice compliment to maybe our expectations that like Buddhists are going to have all the answers. They're going to have it all figured out. They don't the claim solution, to have it all figured out. And the solution is be non-judgmental at all times. Remember, like that was our conversation. But mm-hmm. he's saying that's not how it works, right? I mean, what was the, you had a great up, you had a great uh, uh, quotation. You may uphold superior standards for everyone, which means you need to have expectations that people act ethically. They do the right thing. They 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 act out of outcomes that are going to be positive for folks, and they avoid negative outcomes, right? But excessive arrogance causes disaster for yourself and others. But if all of a sudden you think you've got it sold. You have all the answers. You're perfect. You're That's arrogance. Cause even more problems. So it's like this very question you're asking: How practically do people overcome everyday judgments and judgmentalism? And it's not easy. But the consequence of like just giving up any hope of being a good human being is disastrous, right? And especially in instilling it in other people, if you push a little too hard and and instill your way of living in someone else then they might start to push back a little bit uh like who is this know-it-all um it definitely seems to be something that's so relevant so germane to to what uh we go through in everyday lives i couldn't agree with you more i mean there's an art to persuasion but that's even a strong word i mean there's an art to engaging other people in an open-minded way without being a pushover look these guys are not pushovers no. But they are truly committed to open-minded engagement with others, both. Does that mean they were perfect people? I'm sure they weren't. I mean, I didn't personally get to know with anyone in our book, other than <laughs> doing a lot of reading of their work, right? But I'm sure these guys were not perfect human beings, just because they were Tibetans or Buddhists, right? They were they're human beings. But kind of a commitment, a rigorous commitment to the possibility of like self-improvement and the improvement of your community on the one hand, and at the same time an anxiety of the negative consequences of arrogance or thinking too highly of oneself or thinking too highly of one's lineage. They have they play both sides. And it's an interesting human challenge. And certainly it's one I think that's relevant to human beings today, where we take so much pride in our own chosen philosophies or practices or extracurricular activities or career choices or favorite websites or music or whatever it might be, or pet projects that we all have, right? And people, just as human beings, all of our choices, the way we differentiate ourselves from others, right? I don't think that's a bad thing. But maybe one of the many messages you can take from this book is how quickly pride is generated. And from pride comes high acclaim for oneself and negative judgment of others. And once that game starts, you're in trouble. There's certainly a, a self... Uh a pride that comes from uh, self-improvement nowadays. Um, people who uh, are uh, so passionate on the way they can persuade people. There's a whole industry on how to win friends and influence people. Um, so what's uh, the balance between you know improving yourself for your own uh, advancement uh, versus... Uh, doing so for the sake of um, your own um, enlightenment. I mean, I am in no position to give people advice on this personally. As a human being, I'm just a college professor who helped put <laughs> this book together. Right. But I think trying to take seriously the message of, of this moment in Tibetan cultural history, if we're trying to find guidance, I might say something like this. In the forms of Tibetan Buddhism represented in this book, 
finding a what we may call a spiritual friend that's a technical term they have but really a teacher sometimes people think of a guru but that's kind of a heavy term literally and figuratively finding a teacher you trust is indispensable why because you can't make these judgments you're asking about yourself we don't know if we're just being arrogant and prideful or if we're sincerely trying to help others because we found something we're excited about we don't know we can't know but through the mirror of another human being who reflects back to us our behavior and that's that's why it's indispensable to be committed in a relationship even in an intimate relationship i don't mean uh the way we think of intimacy but like a close friendship or a spiritual friendship with a teacher who has experience who can help you guide you and again i'm not trying to uh i'm not trying to suggest all human beings need to find a spiritual teacher but that was indispensable in this culture and this is a real problem in a contemporary american culture because there have been and continue to be scandals about inappropriate relationships between teachers or self, kind of self, uh, self-acclaimed gurus, and their students, and this is not just a problem of Buddhist practice in the United States. I mean, obviously, we're aware of the broader Me Too movement and the problems of kind of sexual relationships and inappropriate relationships between people of uneven power. And this is a huge issue our culture is dealing with. But we do find this problem, just to say, in kind of self-help-oriented communities, including self-help-oriented Buddhist communities, which, by the way, are not the only kinds of Buddhist communities, but within self-help-oriented Buddhist communities in the United States. And every couple of months, there's a new scandal about a teacher who is inappropriate. So why do I bring this up? Even though there should be anxiety, I think, for anyone who's pursuing a guru or a teacher or a spiritual model to help them through the path, I think everyone should be anxious about this. Just to be aware of how dangerous it can be to get tied up with another human being and to look up to them as a spiritual guide. Right? I mean, people have to be careful on the one hand. On the other hand, from the pers- if we take seriously the Tibetan tradition, it's still indispensable. Is that what? clear? So yeah. I'm not, I can't personally tell you it's indispensable. I don't, that's not my personal position as Josh Shapiro. Who cares what I think? But f- if we're taking seriously the tradition, they would say you, you need that mirror, right? You need that human being who can reflect back to you. And that's a bit of a bind for people. You need to both, it's important, I think, to say, it's to be careful about who you're willing to in, enter into this relationship with. And but simultaneously, there's a demand to enter into that relationship. What were the boundaries between teacher and student in Well, there are vows. Tibet? I mean, there are a whole series of vows. And this is a whole other conversation and topic. But were, um, there, are, there are basically vows and promises and commitments. Were, they, uh, were the teachers more listeners, or did they give advice? Would, would the, the student uh, say, I'm having this issue in my life, and this is how I should go about I mean, it? It's hard to generalize about every relationship, but... Generally the speaking... F- with They were not therapists. Okay. The idea was not that teachers or gurus were simply sounding boards. That was absolutely not the idea. The idea was that teachers are transmitting wisdom that's been passed on from generation to generation, and they know when you don't, and you've got to learn. And yet, in many of these traditions, what's called the tantric tradition or the Vajrayana tradition, there's a certain amount of trust that's and devotion that's necessary from the, from the student to the teacher in order for that transmission to be possible. I mean, think about it. You have a different kind of learning experience if you go to a 300-person lecture with a PowerPoint, you take an exam at the end of the class, than if you have a seminar 
20 people and you're participating and talking the whole time versus if you have a one-on-one tutorial with a teacher. They're very different kinds of learning experience. Or if you're in a long-term relationship with a family member, right? I mean, the learning is going to be very different. And so the idea is that the model of learning that's necessary, maybe there are many different models of learning that are necessary. I mean, there were lecture halls in Tibetan monasteries. But the idea is ultimately to get the real good stuff, meaning to get the real teachings that are going to transform your life. You need something like a relationship that's as intimate, if not more intimate, than the relationship you'd have with your family. And there's no way, two ways around that. But that takes risk. I mean, just think about all of our relationships with our family. Relating to your family, even if they're loved ones and people care for you, are risky. That's why people have therapists, because they're not so uh, comfortable with going to families. And uh, were these... Uh, spiritual teachers entrusted with uh, information uh, presented by the students? I don't know about, I don't know enough about, I don't know quite how to answer that question. I've never thought about or heard anyone talk about that model of gurus as confidants. I guess. I mean, I don't know. I don't even want to speculate. It's just not the way people talk about the job of gurus and students. But does that mean that people didn't pass and keep secrets and talk about their own personal lives and have that kind of relationship? I mean, of course it's possible. I mean, they're human beings. Who knows? Ultimately, what is uh, the relationship between guru and student? And is there anything uh, you know we can learn if, if we do have someone that comes up to us with some problem or uh, they're going to a, a seminar with a Buddhist teacher and they want us uh, to, to change their lives? What what should they know? Well, you know, one of the teachers in his book, Patra Rinpoche, who I've written about a little bit, has a famous passage from this very famous book of his called Words of My Perfect Teacher, all about how important it is to investigate teachers. And I think there are a whole bunch of principles that are applied. And in a way, they're a bit abstract because, of course, when you're trying to get to know a human being, it's anything but abstract. Human beings are idiosyncratic. But the basic principle is teachers should walk the walk, meaning... Whatever teachers teach or they preach, they should you those teachings should emerge in their conduct. So there's this kind of idea, again, practically how often was it put into practice? I don't know. But there's this idea that students should be very cognizant of watching their teachers before they commit to them. And by the way, the teachers should be very cognizant of committing to their students because if you become a teacher of a student, in a way you're responsible for them as well. If they turn out to be a crackpot or totally selfish or a problem, then in a way you're responsible as well. So it's a two-way relationship. But there are instructions about how careful teachers and students need to be in observing one another to make sure that they are sincere in their intentions but also behave properly. So again, I'm in no position to tell people what to look for personally as Josh Shapiro other than to say what you find in some of these texts which say you should hold teachers to high standards. If they're doing things that seem to be strange behaviors, you should ask questions. I'm not sure I can offer anything any more helpful than that. I mean, some of the situations that have arisen in the real world in the United States are complicated and messy and really troubling and, and should make people upset. I well, mean, yeah, so if they, I'm, I'm if in no position here to, to I don't want to like pontificate. I don't have anything to offer people sincerely who are in those kind of situations. What do I know? But there are suggestions, let's say, from the tradition that there's this process of, of of trying to study, be careful, watch the conduct of your teacher. The problem is you don't always know. 
And as human beings, we all get won over by the charisma of other human beings. It happens all the time in every realm, in athletics, in politics, in school, in universities. I mean, it happens all the time amongst your artists, amongst your favorite comedian. I mean, people have kind of these virtual love affairs, even if it's not actual sexual relationship, love affairs with other, other people who are charismatic. I mean, it's just a real issue. I don't think this issue was invented in 21st century America. It's I'm sure there were charlatans in, uh, 20, in 19th century Tibet. Well, absolutely, because there's clearly debates between teachers about who the charlatans are. That happens. That's definitely happened over the course of Tibetan history where some people are called out for not being for being full of it. That absolutely is the case. And that shouldn't be surprising because Tibetans are human beings and human beings have these debates. Who is the authentic one and who's the Charlotte one? You know, it's just a regular part of human society. And absolutely that was the case there. That much we can be confident about. Dr. Shapiro, thank you so much for your time. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before we close the podcast? No, just to thank you for taking the time to come chat. I'm glad you took a peek at the book and I hope anyone's listening might be interested. Maybe there's something valuable there. And if not... Thank you for taking the time to listen to the conversation. It's always fun to chat. There's definitely a lot of value in it, especially I think what resonated is looking at, uh, uh, looking for a good teacher. I think it's a little bit more than a Yelp review, you know. But <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more, Ben. Well, thanks again for taking the time today. Thank you so much.